prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Friday, March 24th, 2023. I cannot believe we are almost at the end of March already. And... I cannot believe that government overreach is just a thing that we deal with on a daily basis. It's become a standard. It used to be so rare. There was a time when government overreach would have been front page news in all mainstream media outlets. People would have been appalled. They would have been incensed. People on the left, people on the right. Everybody should have been upset about it. And yet that is not the case anymore. We're going to cover three stories today all three of them, about federal law enforcement doing apparently what it does best at this point, which is shred the Constitution and just stomp all over the expectations that we have as Americans of the government staying out of our basic business. Pretty incredible. So some of the questions that we should be asking are, how does the political left continue to justify support for the DOJ, the Department of Justice activities, and uh, obviously the FBI being a big part of that at this moment? And then the other kind of question is, is how do they deal with the cognitive dissonance that has to exist when you have these defund the police types who are now cheerleading an FBI and a DOJ that are acting like a pit bull for one political side, but they haven't exactly stopped going after the other side. We're going to talk about a story where the left was targeted pretty aggressively and uh, things that I'm not necessarily a big fan of, but I still defend the right of them to do so, things like racial justice uh, protests, which I think are nonsensical. But in America, you have the right to do that. And it's very important that we continue to defend that right. Um, we're going to talk about how they managed to deal with these things. And I'm going to show you an example of somebody who is definitely not on the right that is pointing out this obvious error, and I don't hear it being covered by the mainstream media. Uh, before we do that, quick little discussion about our sponsor this month. You've been hearing me talk about Patriot Coolers for the last two weeks. They are a fantastic company, patriotcoolers.com. You can go to their website and find any of uh, the things you might like there and add promo code KYLE, K-Y-L-E, and get 10% off any of their wonderful products. So what kind of products they got? They've got things like my coffee mug that I've been running around with. It's got a bunch of uh, stripes on there, 13 stripes for the 13 that are on our American flag. It's got 50 stars on the bottom. It keeps your beverage hot or cold. It's got a spill resistant or a spill proof, depending on which one you buy, because you can get both. And uh, and they have different functionalities. The, the ones that are spill resistant, you can put a big straw in. And the ones that are spill proof, you could probably drop them. Um, probably not me, because I drop them from like a run or other dumb things. But uh, normal people probably could drop them or knock them over on a desk and uh, you know, save some uh, some technology from failing on you. Uh, great gifts. If you need a thank you gift or a housewarming gift, if you need something that you need to show a friend uh, some appreciation, you know, pick one up for yourself as well and get that free shipping over fifty dollars. Definitely a good way to go. And it's a good uh, it's a good company because they're also sponsoring disabled vets. They do this annual. Uh, donation to a number of different vets and in, in denominations, fifty and sixty thousand dollars at a time to help retrofit their homes and make it a little bit more comfortable and livable after uh, sustaining disabilities in our armed forces. So, great cause for that one. Check out their stuff, whether it's a hot cold or uh, a hot cold tumbler or a uh, soft sided or a hard sided cooler. All kinds of stuff coming up, whether it be spring sports, you know, getting into the water, things like that, or you're going to be doing some hunting over the and uh, fishing as the fall comes in. Great reasons to have a good cooler. If you need to replace one, if it's time, check out Patriot Coolers for a good deal. And uh, we appreciate you supporting our sponsors because they are supporting us. Let's dive right in to a little bit of uh, some of the horribleness that's going on this week. It has been just a wacky week. I'm going to share with you this first story coming from our friend uh, who this is at Uncovered DC. This is going to be Wendy Mahoney's story. And Wendy is writing for Uncovered DC. There it is right there. Let's pull this sucker up. There's a good picture of, I guess, Proud Boys. Oh, there he is. That's uh, Zachary Real, who's uh, on trial right now and getting some pretty nasty treatment, I would say. So this article uh, is entitled Government Misleading Court About Informants in Proud Boys Trial. Uh, I'm also going to share with you some conversations I had on the back end with a couple of federal agents that have recently retired, have a lot of time in, both of them two plus decades, and uh, they are actually appalled by this as well. So this is not standard fare or normal in any way, shape, or form. 
And if you go to uncoverdc.com, what you'll see is they are promoting the Kyle Serafin show. What a great thing. All right, so let's go. Uh, The government in the Proud Boys J6 trial seems to be misleading the defense and the court about the existence of informants or confidential human sources. So in the FBI... Uh, for most of the DOJ, they refer to CHS or confidential human form, uh, con- confidential human sources rather. Um, when you hear about them, you know snitches or CIs and, and other sort of law enforcement entities. Same thing. This is just somebody who's an informant. The new emergency motion from the defense counsel in Zachary Reel's case uh, states that the government waited until March 22nd. That's Wednesday of this week, two days ago, to tell the court that one of the defense witnesses has been a CHS, a source, quote, since April 2021, that was just a couple of months after January 6th, through at least January 2023, or since the beginning of the trial. That's pretty staggering. March 22nd also happens to be the day before this particular source was scheduled to testify for the defense. This was a defense witness on the list. And according to reports from Julie Kelly, which we're going to pull up her Twitter feed in a second here and read some of the documents that she shared, um, she's been doing really, really good work on this. It says, quote, prosecutors knew back in December that the defense planned to call this person as a witness. So they've known for, you know, four months. And the individual continued to work as an informant spying on the defense during trial prep. It's it's totally appalling. Um, And we're going to get into why in just a second here. Uh, the revelation prompted the Proud Boys public defender, whose name is Carmen Jimenez, to file an emergency motion requiring that the government disclose all of the uh, reports and recordings related to individuals who may be FBI informants. Pretty sure they're supposed to do that anyway. Uh, four of the Proud Boys defendants, this is going to be Ethan Nordine, uh, Joseph Biggs, Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, or whatever the lead guy is, and then uh, Dominic Pizzola. They're all sort of joined in this request. They co-signed on this emergency motion asking for this disclosure. Uh, I'm going to transfer over here to Julie Kelly's Twitter feed. This might be a little bit small if you're reading, even on Rumble. You have to go full screen. Probably won't work on your phone. Uh, But it's Julie Kelly's thing from the 22nd. So this goes back two days saying, breaking news, just when you think the DOJ can't get any dirtier, this new motion filed uh, by defense is accusing DOJ of using an FBI informant to spy on and infiltrate the defense team. I actually want to read a little bit of the demotion because I think it's worth reading. So this is a little bit bigger. It might be easier for you to see. Uh, this is the case of the United States versus Zachary Real, who's the defendant. Defendant's corrected motion to compel disclosure of all FBI interview reports and all DOJ memos relating to the recording and reporting of the defense team. Now, you may recall that we talked about how they had access to jail calls And the way they got around that was this like terms of service agreement saying that if you want to talk to your client, and obviously a defense counsel needs to do that, because of the COVID restrictions, these are all unvaccinated people, so they have special rules, and the rules are nobody can see them. They have to use the phone. But to use the phone, you surrender your right to attorney-client privilege, which is insane. That is the most insane and egregious thing. Until you start putting sources into the, the camp of the defense counsel. So here's what it says. Defendant Zachary Real, through counsel and pursuant to the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, and the court's supervisory power, respectfully moves this court for an order compelling the government to disclose to the defense all report, e.g. FBI 302 reports. These are going to be testimonial documents. Um, they really need to actually... Yeah, they said all reports. So FBI 302s are going to be interviews, specifically testimonial interviews. They actually need all the source reporting out of Delta. Delta is the uh, so the system that the FBI uses to um, catalog all source interactions. There's some different forms that are filed, actually, when you do a source debrief. Uh, and they want recordings that have been prepared, in this case, related to any person, including but not limited to humans, uh, confidential human sources, and any other witnesses that the FBI communicated with regarding the possibility of any recordings or reports that it may have regarding the defense team. They're literally asking the court, pursuant to the Fifth and Sixth Amendment and the court's ability to, to compel it, to please have the FBI expose all of the things that they have been doing to spy on the defense. It's so, it is so wildly insane. Uh, And I thought maybe I was acting out of line. So I asked a couple of other federal agents, I'll read you what I got response wise from my text messages. Um, Needless to say, they agree. Uh, What else does it say on here? Mr. Reels filed this motion on his own behalf, on behalf of the other defendants, 
with uh, consent of their counsel. Okay. And they are looking for all, yeah, anything that the United States Attorney's Office and, and the Department of Justice attorneys relating to reporting and recording of the defense counsel. So if this person is an informant and was supposed to be a witness, you're going to find out a little bit more um, egregiously, I think, in a second here, because we're going to run down to the second motion. It says that the uh, the CHS was like intimately involved in a bunch of stuff. It says governmental misconduct uh, surrounding the sur- surreptitious invasion and interference into the defense team by the government through a confidential human source at the government's behest. This instant motion is based on a disclosure made to defense counsel today, March 22nd, so two days ago, uh, at the end of the court's proceeding, wherein the government stated that one of its witnesses who was disclosed to the United States and the court as directed by the court in December 2022, who's scheduled to appear in the defense's case the following day, has been serving as a CHS, a confidential human source, since April 2021, and at least through January of uh, of this year. And during that period, the CHS has been in contact, here we go, uh, via telephone, text message, and other electronic means with one or more of the counsel for the defense. So dealing with the public defender and at least one of the defendants in this case. Uh, During this period, the CHS participated in prayer meetings with members of one or more of the defendant's families. The CHS is also engaged in discussion with uh, one of the family members about replacing one of the defense counsel. This stuff is crazy. Why is it so crazy? I'm going to read to you what a former FBI agent and an attorney shared with me someone who has more than two decades of experience in this. It said, there are certain and massive Sixth Amendment rights to counsel concerns, as well as attorney-client privilege issues. If this allegation is true, it's yet another sacred tenant of the American legal system that is being assailed and torn down in the name of quote-unquote blind justice going after these J6 defendants. In 32 years of being an attorney and FBI agent combined. Um, I've never seen such a concerted attack on the constitutional rights in the name of such perverted justice. That's a friend of mine. Uh, there was, he was in the FBI and then another friend who was in the ATF spent over 22, maybe 24 years as an ATF agent, which means you can't trust them because they're in the ATF. And I remind him of that every time I talk to him, but, uh, he's a pretty good guy and we've done some fun, uh, times out. We did some hunting together He also mentioned that it is just incredible. The thing that he brought up that I think is worth noting is that once somebody is represented by counsel, when they have a, uh, they have a right to an attorney and they invoke that right, we now consider them to be represented by counsel. And for all intents and purposes, those people are off limits to questions and interrogations without the attorney being present and it being uh, an open forum. So... The second thing we've talked about on the show even before is that when you have a inability to go directly to a person because they're represented by counsel, you can't have somebody else go to that person. What the government cannot do in person, they cannot have an agent acting on their behalf to. And it's the same reason why we can't set people up for entrapment with a confidential human source if we couldn't do it as an agent. If you're not allowed to do so as a government agent, you can't have someone act on your behalf to do the same thing. This should be pretty straightforward stuff, but this is what we're talking about. And this is what my buddy Mick brought up. Um, we may bring him on the show in the future to have some, uh, some background. He does a lot of drugs and gangs, and now he's actually working on the criminal defense side of the kicket. That's kind of the way it works. A lot of people that spend a bunch of time, you know, building expertise on one side of the coin as a prosecutor will end up becoming well-paid in the defense counsel. And the same thing for investigators, investigators that make, you know, a pension, doing 20 plus years of law enforcement, make really good investigators on the background um, when they flip over to work for a defense. And that's a lot what a lot of people do in retirement. And it's what Mick's doing right now. So he's going to got a really neat perspective. Um, our system is adversarial and everybody is entitled to a reasonable defense. So it's worth noting that. And um, I guess that's probably a good time to bring up that both sides of the coin are, are fair game. We're supposed to have a fair process where everybody is allowed to have their day in court and have Lady Justice be blind, but that is not what we keep seeing. And lest you think that it is a political issue on one side or the other, 
I'm going to bring up a case here written by Trevor Aronson. Now, Trevor Aronson is by no means a right-wing guy. Um, he and I have had a couple of conversations. We text back and forth fairly frequently, sharing information. Uh, one of the things that he's interested in is a, uh, a jihadi case that I worked down in Tampa in 2020, which I have some serious misgivings about. Sounds like the guy just pled guilty and is going to go do 18 years in federal prison. Uh, I'm very hopeful that the the individual that was just sentenced to 18 years will get mental health services while he's in prison because he really does need it. He's a uh, schizophrenic and has significant delusions as well as, you know, swearing allegiance to ISIS and doing some wild stuff, but was not someone who I think was a threat in and of itself, but he definitely needed some help. So he's he doesn't need to be on the streets. And, and Aronson and I have talked about that. Um, you know, I may end up talking to their defense counsel. It probably doesn't matter at this point if the guy has already pled out. Uh, but one of the things that he's really focused on, and he's been doing this for quite a while, he's actually got the 10-year anniversary of his book coming out. And uh, I think they have a 10-year anniversary edition of the book. It's called The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. And the gist of what Aronson has to say which has been validated by my own personal experience and a number of FBI agents who have worked in the counterterrorism space, is that the Bureau dealt with something that I handled in a, in a very short podcast, I think it was only 20 minutes long, that I called Mission Creep. You can go back in there, you can see I'm literally just sitting at a table with a microphone sitting before I got any of the gear and I really got kind of rolled up into this. But Mission Creep is what happens to all government agencies and law enforcement entities when they've run out of the primary purpose for which they exist. And I'm going to do you a, uh, like maybe a three minute version of the 20 minute version I did before. And so I won't be nearly as in depth, but I think you'll get the point in the case of counterterrorism resources, what I believe happened. And I think there's ample evidence to, to suggest this. The FBI got the charter of no American dies from terrorism on our soil. We heard that, uh, as the changing definition of national security by George Hill. I think he was spot on. I think it was the most articulate thing. I keep taking these like pearls from people. I took another thing from Bill Shipley about how the government's only interest should be in the proper process. And so when you take these things, you, you talk to people that are knowledgeable in their own sphere, and they give you really, really specialized background. I try to distill it so that it's a thing that I'm going to repeat to you over and over again. And so 9-11 changed the definition of national security, and the, the American war footing that started on September 12th, sent special forces troops into Afghanistan, eventually resulted in us going into Iraq as well. You know, we, we got into this like prolonged 20 plus year conflict, um, OEF and OIF. Okay, fine. The American military is incredibly effective at hurting feelings and breaking things overseas. It's what it does best. It doesn't do transgender surgeries and it doesn't do woke ideology it takes young men and women that have a fighting spirit and puts them in the place where they go occupy our enemy's attention so they don't come and bother us here incredibly effectively whether there may be some ulterior motives of politicians is sort of irrelevant to the like the actual capabilities that we project downrange through our army our navy our marine corps um, our coast guard our air force like the individuals that work in these services are very, very good at doing one, one thing. And that is just tying up the enemy's attention and making it worth their time to get the hell out. And that's what they did. Um, starting in, in 2001, moving forward and the domestic mission, which saw the advent of the department of Homeland security, which has not been around forever. For those of you who are younger, it's not a thing that existed when I was growing up and certainly not a thing that some of our older listeners have, have grown up with. We actually just had a woman tell me uh, in a, a text message or in a, uh, I don't know, like a, a true social response saying she was a Gen X female and, and she wasn't sure if this was a space where she was going to be, you know, getting information she liked. And um, so we have people that are older than me and, you know, significantly older as well. DHS is a new entity. I mean, it's only 20 years old. And what did it do? But it was developed to keep terrorists out of the homeland. So, okay, fine. So we've got the military overseas doing its job. We've got DHS, we've got the FBI, we've got the intelligence community focused on keeping terrorists out of the domestic side. And they did that. They went after it. And between the two entities, overseas and, and domestic, we knocked out a big, big chunk of what the FBI refers to as international terrorism or ITOS, International Terrorist Operations Section is the actual group that's tasked with it. And there's a ton of money 
I mean, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in funding that goes just to the FBI. And the FBI is, you know, an $11 billion industry or a $11 billion agency this year. DHS is like $120 billion. So you can imagine the amount of money and resources that get focused on international terrorism. Okay, good. So we more or less handled that business. There's not a big chunk, at least before the Afghanistan withdrawal, there wasn't a big chunk of international terrorism coming into this country after a couple of years. And they did a great job doing that. So then they started looking at a thing, and this is where Aronson picks up on a thing that's called homegrown violent extremists or HVEs. Now, I always heard about HVEs when I was in the bureau, and it wasn't really clear to me until I like nailed down one of the analysts who does counterterrorism. And I was like, define HVE for me because I don't get it. Like, what's the difference between a homegrown violent extremist and a domestic violent extremist? And I'm going to tell you right now, so you understand the terminology when you hear it being talked about, and sometimes inaccurately, on uh, news media broadcasts and things like that. If you're listening to Fox or something, Newsmax or, uh, you know, OAN and uh, and Real America's Voice, like all these things, they, they don't always have people that know what these, these terms mean. A homegrown violent extremist, HVE, and we're going in order from IT to HVE, HVEs are people that are born in America or live in America for a period of time. Oftentimes they are like first-generation Americans, second-generation Americans, but they have sympathies with overseas terrorism. So they are not coming from overseas into the United States to cause problems. They are already in the United States, and they decide they are going to align themselves with an overseas problem. And they decide to pick up the ideology of ISIS, of Al-Qaeda, of Al-Shabaab. Take your pick. There's a whole bunch of these things. I'm not an expert on all the different factions, um, and some of them are sub-factionalized. But HVEs align with some foreign terrorist influence, but they're here. And so the Bureau went after them. In true fashion, they exterminated this problem in a really big way. They made it very difficult to be that thing. And there's still an HVE threat. There always probably will be from people who self-radicalize and find something overseas they're into. But for the most part, it's gotten really, really tamped down. Well... There's money to be made looking domestically and keeping these cases going, and there's money to be made for FBI special agents in charge who get bonuses based on the number of cases and disruptions. I want you to think about this. The FBI claimed, and there's some Twitter, you know, if you follow my Twitter, you've probably seen me retweet this from some people. Garrett O'Boyle, our buddy, um, one of the fellow suspendables, called this out, showed that the FBI predicted they would have 600 counterterrorist disruptions in 2022. And they fell short. They only had 397 counterterrorism disruptions. So they had 397, more than one terrorist disruption per day that they logged in order to try to meet this metric of 600. I just want any of you to think about whether or not you have heard of a single legitimate terrorist disruption, some sort of plot or entity that was going to happen and it was disrupted in your world. Wouldn't the FBI be crowing about that? Wouldn't that be front page news every single day we stop this terrorist cell from doing a thing? And and the problem is, is because words don't mean what words mean. Because disruption doesn't mean they stopped a terrorist plot. It means that they found some statistical way to be able to account for articulating a disruption. That doesn't mean what it means to you and me. It doesn't mean they disrupted a terrorist plot. It means that they got a disruption, which is its own thing, and it doesn't have a real meaning. It's a government word, and it's one of those things that just it gets thrown out the window. It's garbage. It means nothing, because there's no chance that the FBI interrupted a single terrorist plot every single day and twice on Sundays for the whole year. No way. It just didn't happen. But that's the way they're arguing. And like I said, they're incentivized by significant bonuses, like five-figure bonuses to the special agents in charge of the different field offices. Uh, the SES class get incentivized based on this performances. So that's why they're trying to do that. All right. But the mission creep happened from international terrorism, finding all the HVEs, these homegrown violent extremists, eliminating them. And then they were like, well, we're already looking around at things domestically. We might as well look for more problems. And that's how we had all the cases, probably after about 2010, on... White supremacists, what they'll know as racially motivated violent extremists. By the way, there's not very many cases on um, like black supremacists, but they do exist, as we all probably know. Um, there's not very many cases on uh, people that are bombing, what are they called? Uh, pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy centers. But we do have an entire category of domestic violent extremists that are called anti-abortion, 
I would know them as pro-life people, but anti-abortion violent extremists. And the ones that are getting arrested right now have basically been involved in praying and a couple of them like chain themselves to, um, so some doors now chaining yourself to a door is in fact, probably a violation of the face act, which says you have to have free access to the clinic. So if you actually hinder real patients going in, you're probably in violation of federal law. And you know, that's a civil disobedience issue. This is not a, a violent extremist group. Chaining yourself to a door is generally speaking, not very violent. And it's something that I used to see in DC all the time. They would change themselves to the Supreme court doors. Uh, they would chain themselves to each other. I was driving one time trying to just fill up my, my, uh, my bureau vehicle with gas and I was driving by and like 18 people chain link themselves uh, and, and handcuff themselves to each other, like blocking a street next to a Whole Foods because Annie wasn't getting overtime. I mean, it was something really, really dumb like that. It literally was a sign that they held up. It says like, Annie's not getting overtime and she's a legal immigrant or whatever. And you just go like, really? And, and you know, and then they handcuff themselves to each other. So they're not violent extremists, but if you do it to an abortion clinic, you are. So be it. Maybe you love babies. Um, there's some other ones out there that are pretty wild. An anti-government, anti-authority violent extremist, which is also a really troubling label. Um, as I've said on this podcast before, like I'm pretty sure the founding fathers of this country would have been considered that thing. But the FBI has got to categorize what it's got to categorize because it's a government agency and government agencies always creep in their mission to be able to generate more revenue, more mission responsibilities. They don't ever want to be less of an agency. They always want to be more than an agency. So they continue to grow, which is why the FBI has the largest budget it's ever had this year in 2023. All right. All of that is a setup to talk about Trevor Aronson's uh, story right here, which I found both hilarious and troubling. And we'll bring it up. This is called The Honey Trap. This is a series that he's writing about the FBI's involvement and uh, the DOJ basically coming in and doing the standard counterterrorism playbook on uh, racial justice protesters, BLM types, in... Uh, Colorado Springs, Denver. Um, I think Aurora was involved as well. So uh, if you're looking at the rumble thing, this is just an awesome photograph of looks like some rioting going on. There's some uh, smoke grenades and stuff like that. It's a really good picture. And the subtitle of The Honey Trap, again, this is in The Intercept by Trevor Aronson, says the FBI used an undercover cop with pink hair to spy on activists and manufacture crimes. If there wasn't a more succinct way of saying it, well, who is this lady with pink hair? And this is where it gets really fun. So uh, this was written on uh, the 21st of this uh, week. So that would have been Tuesday. Very, Still very current article. Um, this is narrative form. I'm going to skip through a lot of it because he writes in a way that's kind of like reading a book. And I very much enjoy reading Trevor Aronson's stuff. Um, but reading it all to you would be sort of ridiculous. It's like, like I said, it's like reading a narrative. Um, but some of these things are just too funny not to share. So the young woman... With long pink hair claimed to be from washington state one day during the summer of 2020 she walked in the chinook center a community space for left-wing activists in colorado springs colorado and offered to volunteer here's where we get really fun she dressed in a way that was sort of noticeable said samantha christensen who is the co-founder um but no one took too note of that like they're you know lefties the pink-haired woman said her name was chelsea and she dropped regular hints about her chosen profession this is why it's when I when I was texting with uh, Trevor about this, he said, "What's more juvenile than this?" And I'll tell you why. Um, the pink-haired woman said her name was Chessie. Yeah, she implied over the course of getting to know her that she was a sex worker. Said John Christensen, that's Samantha's husband. Um, I think somebody else told me that, and I was like, oh, "Okay, that makes sense." I never questioned it. Said another activist in the area. Um, but Chessie, Chelsea's identity was as fake as her long pink hair. The young woman, whose real name is April Rogers was a detective with the Colorado Springs Police Department and on loan to the FBI who enlisted her to infiltrate and spy on the racial justice groups during the summer of 2020. If you're on our Rumble page, you can see right now that April Rogers is the woman wearing a bandana over her hair. She has dyed pink blonde hair. She's wearing a red midriff shirt and she has significantly large breasts. <laughs> which is going to play into this later. So as Trevor was texting me, he goes, uh, how juvenile is this? They just looked at her and said, she's got big boobs. Let's say she was a hooker. That's what, I mean, and that's what they did. Um, some of you have seen this on Twitter already and you've commented. I had somebody comment said any halfway decent looking woman in a, in a left-wing protest is a fed. That's funny. 
Um, I don't know if that's true or not. That doesn't sound accurate to my life, but, uh, but you know, pretty, pretty amusing stuff. So, uh, Roger's work or Chelsea's work was a direct offshoot of the FBI summer investigation into uh, what was going on in Denver in 2020, where Mickey Wendecker, which was a paid FBI informant who drove a silver hearst and came in and tried to encourage the racial justice movement to become violent. Um, he's Aronson has dropped uh, documented this stuff. So this is not like willy nilly. He's read source documents. He's gotten stuff from trials. He's been pulling in uh, FOIA requests. He has investigative documents. Um, body cam footage from the local police departments he's getting. He's a, I mean, he's a good reporter and his, his stuff is very well documented. His book, the terror factory, which I said is coming up on the 10 year anniversary right now was listed as required reading by my friends, including our producer, Phil, who's not with me at the moment, but, uh, Phil recommended it as a required thing to understand how counterterrorism cases work in the FBI. And since we were on a surveillance team that did a significant amount of counterterrorist work, both in DC, and then also just all around the United States. I mean, even my first two weeks on, I flew to Alaska, and jumped into these like white supremacy cases. He's like, you have to understand how they do them. And there's a reason why Aronson talks about the manufactured war on terror. And it's because the Bureau is incentivized to have these cases come out. And what they do is they do this, they send in this April Rogers type to, to lure people and claim to be a prostitute or win their, their favor. And then, you know, they rile people up and they introduce them to other people that are other undercovers. And we'll kind of kick into kind of the, the, what they, they set up here. Um, so Rogers gained trust amongst the activists. She, I'm skipping a couple of pieces here. It just said that she worked with the JTTF, the joint terrorism task force and some other stuff. So she gained trust among the activists. She tried to set up at least two young men in a gun running conspiracy her tactics mirror those of Windecker. This is the guy that was in Denver who tried to entrap two Denver racial justice advocates in crimes, including an FBI engineered plot to assassinate uh, Colorado Attorney General uh, Phil Weiser uh, that went nowhere. To reveal what happened in Colorado Springs, I obtained search warrant applications. And so this is where this is the documents that, that uh, Trevor actually got. And we'll probably jump back to that in a second here. But um, he got body camera footage from local police officers that were uh, investigating and, and working on behalf of the FBI or with the FBI. Um, so when, when a task force officer joins and works with the FBI, they're still subject to whatever their protocols are. And that's like a real tricky and sticky spot for the Bureau because the Bureau hasn't traditionally ever used things like body cam footage. We don't even record half of our interviews, even though we sh we're supposed to. Um, it just doesn't happen. And so, hold on here. Actually, uh, I don't know if I've showed this before. This is my personal recorder that I bought with my money because I wanted to be able to record interviews with subjects because I don't like taking notes and then relying on my notes and then scanning that in. In fact, I often took no notes. I simply would record the actual thing that the person said, and then I would give it to our secretary who was really helpful and very kind. And she would um, burn it onto a CD and she would burn a copy for me. She'd burn a copy for the assistant U.S. attorney, she would burn a copy for the master copy, and then she would burn a copy for the defense in discovery. We would always get four copies of every recording, and then I would just put them all in the file, and whenever discovery came up, you could just send it off. Um, and whenever the United States attorney wanted to hear the interview, you just send it over the copy. And then we had a master copy that went off to what's called Elsher, electronic evidence, and then the last one was mine to use for, for working copies. Um, it's really straightforward, but that's not what the Bureau does, and the Bureau doesn't know how to deal with body cams it's like a new it's always a new kind of game it's like okay they're they're out there so how do you handle yourself i've had people tell me like hey guys like be careful because we're going to be out there with fill in the blank dc metro pd las cruces police department sheriff's department you name it you know whatever other entity that had body cams and it's like you know watch what you say because you're going to be on body cam okay i guess um it's interesting because it does give you some light into things that are going on. And, uh, you know, cops that wear them every single day have learned to just live with them. They're still kind of novel to federal agents who don't basically have most of their life on tape. And, um, and so you get weird disclosures that happen from cops on it. And in this case, one of the things that he mentioned that they saw is they reviewed hundred pages, uh, hundreds of pages of internal FBI records from, and if you've listened to our podcast, you know, social media exploitation, also known as SOMAX which is a, uh, a thing that the Bureau does. Uh, every field office has some ability to do so. And it's usually an intelligence analyst piece where they go and gather information from people's social media. Now, you probably don't have a, a reasonable expectation of privacy on most of your social media. 
Um, you know, you might have a little bit for your DMs and they may have to go get a little bit more, but not if, not if the company who owns them is willing to give them over. But um, this Somex type stuff can be used to do a very light touch. So I, my understanding is if somebody were to go to say like a LinkedIn page, and I don't have LinkedIn, so I'm sorry, I can't testify that this is true. But my understanding is if you go to a LinkedIn page, it'll tell you who's been in contact with your page. Um, some of these Somex tools that we have that the Bureau has and that other law enforcement entities have can basically crawl across your page and grab the information without alerting you to that. So a very, what they would call like a light touch. And, you know, that's what this guy is basically seeing. So Aronson's seeing that, you know, the cops pulled this stuff down. They're reviewing on body cam footage, the, the actual um, documents that the Bureau gave them on some of the activists they were dealing with. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, Rogers wouldn't, uh, wouldn't speak. Uh, she said she was told by the Justice Department not to testify or say anything. So she's declined to be part of the uh, comments. The FBI refuses to answer anything in writing. Colorado Springs Police Department not going to do anything, refers everything to the FBI. So nobody in law enforcement made any comments to this story. Uh, still pretty fun. Pretty interesting. Let's see here. We've got uh, the senator from, um, he's a Democrat senator from Oregon, looks like, says it's disturbing but not surprising to learn the FBI's reported targeting of racial justice activists in 2020 wasn't limited to Denver alone. It's a clear abuse of the authority of the FBI to use undercover agents, informants, and local law enforcement to spy on and entrap people engaged in peaceful First Amendment protected activities without any evidence of criminal activity or violent intent. I hope that Ron Wyden is willing to come forward and say that about all the things. This should also be the issue with January uh, 6th protesters. There are plenty of people that were not involved in anything particularly violent. Uh, and their pre-conversations to the day of January 6th should be First Amendment protected activities because there was no violence and nothing was indicated until maybe after the fact. But it's like, it's really dangerous stuff. We're dealing with a time when this overreach is so strong and so uh, it's ubiquitous. And it doesn't matter if it's on the left or the right. So this should be a bipartisan issue. And we keep seeing that it is not over and over and over again. Um, the uh, If you're looking on the page, let's, let's flip it over here and show this page. So here's a page of some people getting in the face of. They've got uh, Tamir Rice. They've got uh, Trayvon Martin. They've got Philando Castillo. These are totally different cases that have nothing to do with each other. Eric Garner, uh, Michael Brown. Uh, you've got a, a white guy wearing a mask and khaki shorts and like some some uh keds or something and it's like the there's a black guy is yelling at two cops standing in the rain i'm just describing it for if you're if you're watching if you're uh, listening to this thing um but they're showing this great picture i mean it's like a great picture of people protesting and here's the deal i don't agree with what the racial justice the quote-unquote racial justice profile or uh, protesters were involved in but like that's their right that's the whole thing like you got to let them do their thing even if they're being jerks now, if they start getting into violence, then it's a different animal, but that's not what's going on here. This guy basically, and if they are blocking streets, then maybe we have some civil infractions, but this, you know, you don't set them up with gun cases. This is bizarre. All right. So there's another uh, little thing underneath here. I'm scrolling past it, but there's like, you know, three people protesting in the street, which is, they have some really good pictures on the intercept. Um, if you're not regularly viewing theintercept.com, it's fairly left-leaning. It has some pretty um, aggressive leftist stuff. Uh, but at the same time, the recording, you know, the reporting, at least Trevor's reporting has been very good. Glenn Greenwald does a really good job in general of curating a pretty interesting, uh, online newspaper. So I recommend it, even if it doesn't fit your general political lean, see what, see what's out there. That's, that's kind of what I like doing sometimes. I'm going to do a revolver news piece next, and we'll talk about that. And I think they're also interesting. Um, maybe a little bit more on the, on the fringy type stuff, but, um, but still good reporting and strong writing. So they talk about the murder of George Floyd. I don't know if he was murdered. I know he was convicted. Uh, the Derek Chauvin was, but uh, it didn't feel like a murder to me. So be it. Jury of his of his peers allegedly, you know, came out there. I, this whole last couple of years has been pretty gross watching some of this stuff. Um, just as somebody working in law enforcement, it's really troubling to watch. Uh, it says activists there were not only angered by George Floyd's death, but the killing of a local man, a guy named uh, Devon Bailey, who was shot in the back by police officers in 2019. Getting shot in the back is a pretty bad news thing. There's only a few situations where that makes sense. Um, I was just reading about one where it's like some guy got shot in the back of the head and you're like, oh, well, that's pretty cut and dry. And then you're like, oh, Benjamin Crump is involved, this uh, this attorney. So I bet you there's more to the story. And it turns out the guy got shot in the back of the head because he was in his car and he was reversing into police officers and he hit like seven cops with his car when they were shooting at him, probably to defend their lives. The whole story is always a little bit more. 
All right. So uh, this guy, Devon Bailey, I don't know his story, and I don't want to click through it at the moment to talk about it. So we're going to talk about it in 2020, these racial justice demonstrations roiling the nation, including Colorado Springs activists organizing protests outside the home of Alan Van Zant Lant, who is one of the um, officers involved in, in this uh, gentleman Bailey's death. They're calling him a murderer. They're yelling stuff um, on the bullhorn. It's tough. You know, doing things outside of people's houses is definitely you're on the line of sketchiness. Uh, but that's a local issue. That's definitely not an FBI issue. And you're dealing with some, you know, the, the free speech issue over like maybe the invasion and the, the threatening of, of somebody's uh, personal property, whether you can or cannot parade or have a picket in front of houses and neighborhoods. I mean, it's a local police issue. This is not an FBI issue. Anyway, they blocked the roads to the neighborhood. Uh, protests escalated. Drivers tried to get through. They got into verbal altercations with people. Some black activists and college student named Charles Johnson um, argument goes on. Supposedly a phone gets swatted out. This is like really minor. This is local problems. Um, it says other, uh, demonstrators recorded the encounter and the footage from this protest circulated among far right media assets as an example of apparent dangers of racial justice and anti-fascist activists. Um, and then this conspiracy conspiracy theorist, who are they calling this? Oh, this is not. <laughs> so Michelle Malkin, AKA con- a conspiracy theorist who lives in Colorado Springs tweeted out nowhere is safe. So there you go. Um, like you said, you got to lean here. It is what it is. The protesters mostly were wearing face masks due to the pandemic, making it difficult for police to identify them. But I, I and I'm not, you know, there's actually mask laws in most places, which uh, we apparently abandoned in 2020. But in most places, if you are committing a crime and you're wearing a mask, that in and of itself, the mask in order to conceal your identity is actually a crime. Uh, it's definitely the case in D.C. because I used to deal with this all the time. Anyway, uh, FBI had a source that on the inside, this woman, Rogers, this young detective who had suggested she was a sex worker. Once again, she was going by the name Chelsea. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff you go on. You learn a little bit about her day to day and what she was doing and that she was basically rifling through their files. And they gave access to, uh, you know, letting her run around in their their kind of their shop, the Chinook Center for they have an office and there was, uh, you know, organizations and activist stuff. And so she's like siphling through their stuff. I guess that they gave her permission, but... They didn't give her permission based on what they were knowing. So I don't know how that works under the Fourth Amendment. That seems like, you know, if they had given it to her, it's very different than her going and rifling through it when they're not in there. It sounds like she was uh, like rolling through there when nobody was looking and then feeding it to the FBI. Pretty bizarre. Uh, definitely, definitely interesting. Here's a picture of some of the Somex stuff. So you can see these are print offs from social media captured on the body cam footage of a guy named Scott Alamo. Scott Alamo says some pretty funny stuff. Uh, during that thing, he's talking about, well, they get paid to sit and wait and do surveillance. That's what surveillance is. You get paid to sit and wait. So there's nothing really uh, crazy about that. But the fact that he's running through mugshots, not mugshots rather, but uh, people's Facebook, their LinkedIn, their Instagram profiles, social media messages, things like that are in printed documents that he's sitting there reading through while they're on surveillance. Kind of interesting. And then he makes some like very derogatory and probably uh, off-putting things, statements about, uh, you know, what what he thinks about uh, different people, including this guy, John Christensen, who apparently was a college professor. He was like, yeah, that guy gets a boot to the face. And then at some point in time, they actually boot him in the face. That's never really good. It's never good uh, that you have a plan to go and beat somebody up and then actually go do it later on. Uh, that being said, this guy, Alamo, who they got some body cam footage of, is pretty funny. He, uh, he in, in my little Twitter post about it, a couple other kind of cool pictures. There's a picture of a um, uh, some kind of activist who was masked up and wearing a. Um, oh, I'm not showing it, am I? There it is. Uh, masked up and and was like having a cop come up at them and like threw the bike down in front of them. I mean, these this is all locally local stuff. Um, aggravated attempted assault for throwing for throwing a bicycle down at a cop like. Local problems, local issues, not not my kind of world. Uh, what's really wild is that this woman, Rogers, apparently invited two young male activists uh, to her apartment to hang out with. And she's like, you know, attractive enough, I guess. And she's um, she has like very distracting large bosoms. <laughs> That's just such a funny thing that they they decided to like try and do this. And um, this is where it gets kind of sketchy, I think, for most people. This is the honeypot. So Rogers, meanwhile, began to invite young male activists to our apartment uh, in a recording that Aronson got. The FBI agent in Colorado Springs confirmed that the meetings between Rogers and at least two activists occurred. Although the possibility of a sexual encounter appeared to be implicit in the invitations, the meetings always took an unexpected turn. Uh, when she would invite people over, there were two guys sitting there, and the guys uh, were apparently undercovers. And they uh, were like, 
interested in buying guns or selling guns to people. It says, so there's two guys sitting there and the activist who didn't want to be identified said, uh, um, you know, Rogers asked if he could buy, could find illegal guns for her. And, and, um, <laughs> and the guy says, uh, no, I'm not going to sell you an illegal gun because he was a firearms enthusiast and gun people. Many of you who watch the show probably have the same feeling. We don't easily get ensnared in illegal gun law problems because, um, we kind of have a pretty good idea what's in and out of bounds. I, I did several hundred private firearms transactions in the state of Texas using a, a service called Texas Gun Trader and then Arms List when it was still free. Uh, once you know how those things kind of work, you kind of have your own protocol, like what you do. You know, you write up a bill of sale. So, all right, let me just stop that right there. If you've never bought or sold a gun outside of a gun store, in many states, it doesn't require any paperwork. I would say the vast majority of states, you don't have to do anything special. You don't need a background check. You just have to have no particular reason to believe that the person that you're selling is a prohibited person. That's going to be a felon or somebody who's involved in domestic violence. And, and then there's kind of like best practices that some people like to do. Like they'll uh, do a driver's license number or um, they'll fill out a bill of sale with a driver's license number. They'll take a picture of the person's ID and kind of check it out, make sure they're the right age, all that kind of stuff. None of that's required of you. In most places, you just have to have a reasonable belief that there's no reason to believe the person is prohibited. Um, and I kind of had my own little thing. I generally like to do business with people who had concealed handgun permits. And if they did have that, that means that they had gone through a background and usually some degree of training, particularly in the state of Texas, there's like a class and you kind of know who takes that class. And the people who take the class are gun people or people that want to be gun people. And they're not a problem and they can buy guns because they can actually go to a gun store and present that and not have to even go through the 4473 they can skip the background check um, if memory serves. I'm pretty sure that's the case. So all that being said is that gun people tend not to get ensnared in this kind of stuff. And in this case, they have a cop who's trying to ask this guy to get a gun illegally, whatever that was going to look like. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. This is Colorado. So they got some screwy gun laws from what I remember. Um, I'm not totally up on Colorado laws, but I know that it's a blue enough state that it's not a place where the Seraphim family is going to ever live. So there it is. Uh, another time, apparently, she uh, brought some people over and there were two dudes there, one named Mike and one named Omar, um, when this guy Gabriel Palchik was uh, invited over. And Mike was missing a left leg from the knee down and Omar was kind of a Middle Eastern looking guy with a big beard. Okay, This is what he's uh, telling Aronson. Both had tattoos and they were very buff. <laughs> they claimed to be truckers who traffic in illegal weapons and said they could get grenades, TNT, and AK-47s, and then asked him if he wanted to buy anything. Um, if anybody offers you to sell you explosives or like silencers for guns without a tax stamp, that's a Fed. I'm just going to go out there on a limb and just let you know as listeners of the Kyle Serafin Show, you don't need to be hanging out with those people. Those are not people you want to be dealing with. Anybody that tells you they're going to hook you up with that, um, you know, you might want to report them to local law enforcement and burn that cover. But uh, that is a uh, just a terribly stupid federal operation going on right there. So anyway, apparently this dude was intrigued with them, hung out with them. Uh, he said he never saw any of the things. They showed him an AK-47. They claimed it was fully automatic, but he had no way to test it. Of course, he's not going to like go blast it into a door. Um, but these guys were, you know, buying him meals and drinks and giving him cigars and like pumping him full of drinks and uh, trying to, you know, give him 16-year-old scotch. I've never seen 16-year-old scotch. I've seen 12 and I've seen 18. Maybe you guys will put that in the comments. Is there 16-year-old scotch? Is that a thing? Uh, do they do those kind of years? I guess they probably could do all of them. So let me know. What's what's a good 16-year-old scotch in the comments? I would uh, love to know. Not that I'm a big scotch guy, but I am curious. Anyway, he never bought any uh, weapons from these people. So these two like apparent attempted setups were happened. He's never been charged with a crime. Um, didn't want to deal with it, but was obviously showing up in these public court documents. Here's what's really funny. So this guy, Scott Alamo, police officer, the one that was looking at the Somex reports, he is, um, he's on the body cam and it says, uh, Alamo's body cam captured something else that day. In the recording, he mentioned that there were police officers secretly among the protesters at the housing march. This is another, you know, protest that's going on. He said there were two undercover cops and, and plain and four plainclothes officers. And then he looked at a photo on his phone. A picture of April with her giant boobs, Alamo says, and laughed, apparently referring to one of the other colors in the crowd. The activists at the Chinook Center watched that video, and at the time, they didn't know who April Roger Rogers was, but it was a pretty easy process of elimination. Eventually, they were able to triangulate that April Rogers was, in fact, Chelsea, and that's when they figured out who this lady was who's running around because this guy outed her because of her biological build. Um, 
they go on and on. This is a very long article. This is the the kind of stuff that uh, Trevor Aronson writes. I think they're really good. Here's another picture of April Rogers with her pink hair. If you're looking on the uh, Rumble thing, I'll pull it back up. Uh, I was scrolling through to try and find a couple other pictures. You know, I don't know that she looks very cop-like, so I guess that's a convincing undercover. But uh, for whatever reason, this is what they chose to use. This is the kind of move where you're trying to build a crime where it doesn't exist. And people should have a real problem with that. They should have an issue with your government trying to come after you that way. Um, I'm going to read one more story here, and then we'll talk quickly about the Trump thing. I think this one is just also... We found out about some other Brady material that's not going out. Apparently, federal judges are not being versed in what Brady is. Uh, the Biden appointee didn't know what Brady material was. Uh, for those of you that have been following attention, you know, paying attention to what's going on in all these different trials, Brady material comes from the 1963 Supreme Court decision, Brady v. Maryland, and it is a re requirement um, for, <laughs> for the prosecuting office, whether it be federal or state, they have to provide the defense with all exculpatory evidence that they're knowledgeable of. And here's another one of these cases. This one is coming from Revolver News. Um, and let's see who has the byline here. Not sure it says. So I'm going to assume that it's all uh, Darren Beatty. Uh, it says breaking the Doug Mackey. Now, this is the case we talked about earlier this week. Douglas Mackey. The, the attorney for him accused the DOJ of withholding exculpatory uh, information and has demanded a mistrial in this critical 1A, quote unquote, meme trial. That's the thing here. So in a remarkable new development in the Douglas Mackey meme trial, his lawyers are calling for a mistrial on the basis of the government failing to disclose potentially exculpatory information to Mackey as they are required to do by law under Brady v. Maryland. Mackey's attorney wrote a letter that suggests that the exculpatory information pertains to uh, DOJ interviews with Hillary Clinton. Uh, it's not stated, but Hillary Clinton campaign staffers that were made available to Mackey's defense mid-trial. So they didn't tell him before the thing happens. Um, and here's the actual motion, which is what I actually want to read. We'll leave the rest of the article out here. So let's read the motion. Let's pull this thing up on the screen. Here's what it says. Uh, it's to the, uh, to the judge, the Honorable Ann Donnelly. Uh, this is being uh, handled right now in the Eastern District of New York, for your awareness, which is not the most favorable place for this to happen for this guy. Dear Judge Donnelly, this is kind of funny because you usually don't see a dear judge. Uh, that's not usually the way the motions are done. But anyway, uh, yesterday morning, shortly before court convened for the second day of testimony at trial in the above referenced case, the government handed me two FBI 302 interview reports of Amy Carr. These are FD 302. That's the file who worked for the presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton in 2016. Although I had not had sufficient time fully to consider all of the ramifications of the government's mid-trial disclosure, I immediately moved for a mistrial because the disclosure of the reports appeared to include information which the government has been required to disclose prior to the trial beginning or before trial pursuant to Brady v. Maryland, um, which, again, cited 1963. Um, at yesterday's lunch break, after the revelations of the report of Ms. Carr, I requested that the government produce FBI 302s of all interviewed views of people who worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign. The government produced an additional 16 interviews. So that's 18 total interviews that were not made available to the defense and are made available mid-trial. This is incredible stuff, though. Um, and I don't know if it's incompetence or malfeasance. I just don't know. It's it's like it continues to happen. It just feels like the DOJ is marching out a playbook of just trying to railroad these things. And all of them have significant political ramifications because they are politically charged prosecutions in so many ways. Um, a cursory review of these reports establishes that they also include material that should have been produced before trial pursued into Brady v. Maryland. Um, I did not publicly file the reports here with to afford the government an opportunity to redact uh, telephone numbers and other personal information, but I have incorporated, incorporated them um, them all by reference herein. It's kind of uh, stilted language here, sorry. Uh, since court adjourned yesterday afternoon, I've been preoccupied with preparing Mr. Mackey for his expected testimony. So this is what the attorney's supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be like prepping the client to do testimony and getting this other stuff done. Um, they're not supposed to be like expecting new things and disclosures mid-trial, at least not the way I understand it. And uh, this would have been things that were available. The FBI would have included this in discovery. When you click discovery export, so here's some inside baseball. The FBI runs everything on a system called Sentinel. And uh, Sentinel, when you run it, is pretty easy to handle. It is a, um, it's, it's like a, 
uh, it's like a file sharing program. And when you click discovery export, it literally exports everything that is appropriate for discovery that's outside of whatever you're not supposed to. There's some things like grand jury and there's some other things like source documents that don't go. But generally speaking, all of your FT302s, which are basically, um, they are just interview summaries. It's the FBI agent goes and does an interview. They write it up in a 302. The 302, um, you know, the, the arrest is actually documented in a 302. Um, search warrants are documented once you serve them in a 302. It's just it's just a testimonial document that says what happened, and um, and that's it. Then you then they go over on a CD, and I don't know that you can leave them out. So the fact that they were not um, picked is is totally bizarre, and uh, it's really you know it's a problem. It's a serious problem, I would say. Um, that that's the case. So in any case, uh, we can read, uh, just a little bit more here. Uh, it says the court adjourned. Yeah. I haven't uh, had ample time to review it because uh, they were doing stuff in the trial and evaluation options. Uh, for this reason, I respectfully request an adjournment of the trial for at least another day to afford Mr. Mackey and me an opportunity to evaluate the new information and what our options are and that this application is denied. Then I respectfully request time to review and uh, a renewed motion for a mistrial. So that's the mistrial motion in the case of Mackey, uh, Mr. Mackey here. And, uh, you know, these are Brady violations. This is like basic stuff. These are basic procedural problems that we should not be seeing in, uh, in a DOJ that does this for a living in an FBI that does this for a living. Like they're the ones that are supposed to be the experts. And as we mentioned, I said, there's kind of two nuggets that I keep taking away from people. One of them is the change of national security that happened from George Hill. The other one is what Bill Shipley said, also known as shipwreck crew. Who's on, on Twitter and, you know, used to write for red state. And he said something the other day that I just keep repeating over and over again, but it's so true. The government doesn't have a vested interest in the outcome of criminal prosecutions, nor in the uh, a vested interest in the outcome of an investigation. Like you want to get bad guys if they're bad, but your job should be to try to find exculpatory information. If it exists, if there's something out there that disproves your case, you should be looking for that equally hard. That's like just, that's just the simple idea of of fairness. And um, so the government doesn't have an interest in the outcome. They only are interested in a fair process, but that is not the government we're seeing. What we're seeing is this massive overreach, this massive attempt to continue to quote unquote win. And the story of, of, uh, of Doug Mackey's, which is probably one of the worst stories there is, is that these are memes from 2016 that started getting prosecuted under Biden's administration only in 2021. That should chill your blood, as I said last uh, last episode. It really should put the fear of God into you that protected free speech, and that's what most of this is, this is a First Amendment trial that is on trial and they're acting like it's something else, like he somehow deprived people of their ability to vote. This guy posted memes on social media and was arrested five years later. That is truly, truly abhorrent to the American sensibilities. And it should be every bit as abhorrent that we've got you know, uh, former or current cops working as undercovers, trying to sell guns to people that have no interest and trying to solicit guns from people that have no interest because there's no allegation that they're involved in the gun trafficking or doing anything illegal like that. This is the government trying to set cases up. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. This is a nonpartisan issue. I'm just going to keep saying it. It is not a partisan issue. The fact that the House Democrats are not willing to play ball with the weaponization committee and root out the things that are going after their constituents too. It shows you some really nasty political angling, I guess. I don't even know what you call that. Like, it's just it's just bad. It's bad politics, and it's not smart. It's really not smart on so many levels. All right, folks, that's as much as we can handle for this week. I want to let you know in advance that uh, I've already done an interview uh, with Steve Baker. He was on uh, Tucker Carlson's show this week. I did the interview earlier today, and we'll be showing it on... Monday. I might even put out a Twitter poll because we went for over three hours and I didn't want to stop it at any point. <laughs> I wanted to just keep hearing what he had to say. He's a brilliant speaker. He has very good analysis. He's right down the middle of the road as far as the kind of people I like to talk to. He mentioned he doesn't care about one side or the other. There were clearly people that he saw January 6th that were protesters that were involved in violence. And he said that they were clearly to blame for the violence, that they instigated it and they began it. And there were more uh, cops that were also involved in doing things that were very, very interesting. And I've not heard described the way that it has. He had access to not just the tapes that Tucker Carlson had, but he also had access to um, 
radio transmissions that were being sent and recorded on the day of January 6th by the Capitol Police. And he's talked to different Capitol Police whistleblowers. Seriously interesting man to speak to. I very much enjoyed it. He and I ended up talking for another 30 or 40 minutes after we got off. I spoke to him for about four hours today. So I'm debating breaking this up into a couple of bite-sized pieces because three and a half hours is, uh, you know, three hours and 15 minutes is Joe Rogan territory, as he mentioned. I don't want to do that necessarily to anybody, but um, I... Keep a lookout and see. We may, like I said, we may have a poll on this to kind of decide whether it's the right thing to do. And uh, I'll let you guys decide if you want to see something. A little break in format. We haven't been doing our format too long, but I think it's uh, it might be worth it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, as you probably know. I am Kyle Serafin. I do really appreciate you listening. I would hope that you consider subscribing to any of the channels where you are listening to our our podcast. If you're watching it on Rumble, please check that out. Drop us a comment. They actually run the algorithms that says uh, comments are like an interaction, and that means that your your thing is more interesting and it promotes it more. So if you don't mind giving us a comment, something that's interesting, a question or an answer to what kind of scotch is out there, uh, doesn't make a difference to me. Something on there would be great. And then Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening to things, things like Podbean, um, you can listen to the audio and you can download that. If you want to set us up for automatic downloads, you always have us in the car whenever you're driving through somewhere without good cell service or without a good radio station to listen to. And we'd love it for you to give us a listen on those things. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend. Let them know that we're out here doing this thing. Uh, we do it three times a week. And uh, today, Friday being the last one. Mondays are our long-form interviews. It's where the most of you are coming and tuning in. And I think you're going to find uh, that this Monday is going to be really, really interesting to you. So check that thing out. We'll give you access to uh, a bunch of interesting people, firsthand sources of information, people who were there or have had uh, government malfeasance executed against them. Worth your time. Uh, we appreciate your feedback. If you got a five-star review, you can leave on Apple uh, Podcasts. So I always put the link in the bottom of the show notes. Feel free to click through on that. Give us a review. We'll read some on the show. I don't have one easily available to me, but I will make up for it soon. And I'll do another one for you guys. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And I do, like I said, really appreciate it. I will look forward to seeing you on Monday for our interview of Steve Baker. And uh, definitely bookmark it to come back for that one. You're going to enjoy it. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.